Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Here in New York and across the country, we've been witnessing a surge of violence and xenophobia perpetrated against Asian American communities. We witnessed the horrific shootings targeting predominantly Asian American women in Atlanta, and a recent report issued by the Asian American Bar Association of New York highlights how New York City has become an epicenter of anti-Asian hate violence. To top it all off, we witnessed another mass shooting in Colorado. The threat of gun violence combined with white supremacist ideology poses a grave threat to LGBTQ communities people of color communities, religious communities, and others. March 31st marks Transgender Day of Remembrance. There are too many transgender women of color who have been murdered year after year. Gun violence is an LGBTQ issue. From the shooting at Pulse to the murder of trans women of color, LGBT people are impacted by the same hate violence. So today, we are going to focus on these topics, speaking with experts about the issues and what we can do. My first guest is Chris Kwok. Chris will speak to us about the report I mentioned, highlighting the surge in attacks on AAPI communities in New York City. My next guest is Keegan Mays Williams, Policy Counsel at Everytown for Gun Safety. She is a member of the League Out Board of Directors, and she will talk to us about the connections between hate violence and easy access to guns. There is nothing light about this topic, but we want to understand and strategize about how we can bring collective action and legal solutions to end the violence, hate, racism, and death. Let's dig in. Anti-Asian hate has skyrocketed in New York City. Most notably, there was the Atlanta attack on March 17th, targeting Asian women. And as we are recording this podcast, there is a video circulating showing a 65-year-old Asian woman walking to church in New York City when a suspect assaulted her. The video shows the building security guard not only refusing to render aid, but closing the door on the scene. The Asian American Bar Association of New York, together with Paul Weiss, published a report on the rising tide of hate violence in New York during COVID-19. And I'm joined today by Chris Kwok, the co-executive editor of that report. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. The pandemic has forced isolation um, on, on all of us, but it also has inflamed division for many Americans. And the result here in New York City and across the country has been a rise of anti-Asian hate and violence in 2020. The report you have begins uh, with a dedication um, dedicated to uh, Corky Lee, who passed away on January 27th, 2021, due to COVID-19. Can you start us off by talking a little bit about how Asian Americans have been impacted by the pandemic and how they're leading the healthcare response? Yeah, um, you know, the economic impact was felt by Asian-owned businesses in New York uh, and around the country in America, uh, beginning in January, because as soon as the uh, virus was identified in Wuhan, China. Uh, people felt like, hey, if I avoid Chinatown and Asian-owned businesses or restaurants, we'd be more safe. So they began feeling the economic sort of decrease earlier. Uh, once the shutdown actually began in earnest in March of 2020, uh, then everyone was shut in their 
uh, you know, homes, uh, you know, trying to be safe, except for our brave frontline workers. Uh, but then the Trump using the China virus really sort of, you know, began this latest wave of sort of beginning a uh, resurfacing a an element that's been there in America towards China, and then later on to people that appear to be Chinese or Asian, uh, you know, and, and kind of put it there sort of in, in public in a really big way. It, it, the media focus came off because we went into BLM in the summer, and rightly so, because, you know, uh, that was a certainly an issue that we needed to address. And, and so the focus went on there for really the summer into the fall. And then as we got into this, you know, new year, 2021, it kind of resurfaced again because it really didn't go away. We were in our homes. Trump had made it a really sort of, you know, sort of high profile from the podium, China virus, right? Um, and as we hit the beginning of this year, we saw it again. Now, all in this period, you know, many, many Asian Americans were frontline workers. Um, they were in healthcare. The Filipino nurses, um, you know, really, they're 4% of all nurses in America, but you know, it, it was a 30% of all deaths, just a really high number of deaths because they're frontline workers taking care of people, getting out there and fearing like retaliation or attack as they were going to work and coming back work because there was like nobody on the street, you know, except for them, frontline workers and whoever would be attacking them. So, uh, and, and Asian Americans uh, do have high representation within the medical field. So they were both sort of serving bravely at the front lines, but then also, suffering, you know, sort of fears of getting to and from work. So overall, like all Americans, Asian Americans sort of, you know, were suffering from this sort of real stress from the social fabric, but they had additional worry because of who they were perceived to be. Yes. And it did seem that, I mean, the Trump rhetoric was purposeful and it's, um, it, it was chosen in many ways to incite uh, division. Yeah. And then that was classic Trump, uh, you know, and he was playing to these tropes. It was a geopolitical, you know, struggle. You know, he saw China as the enemy. He wanted to make it the enemy. The enemy gave us the virus was what he was saying, right? And, and, and they're, they're, they're messing with us. Uh, but of course, you know, as an Asian American, as a Chinese American, I was sitting there watching and I was like, uh-oh, someone just put a target on my back. Like literally, it was just cold chill to see that message come from the podium of the one of the most powerful people in the world. And it, uh, but thank God for our free press. Thank God for the reporters that push back. You know, I remember them pushing back and, you know, you know, um, you know, holding him to account on these issues. So I have to say that, although at the same time you were, I was feeling that, you know, hearing the press question, push back, people of color press who really got it, who really understood what that meant, you know, that gave us a lot of hope. So the numbers are alarming, um, and the report details uh, a lot of it. During a one-month span in 2020, uh, from February to March, the New York City Commission on Human Rights received reports of 389 coronavirus-related hate incidents. And of those, 145 complaints involved anti-Asian sentiment, representing 37% of all of those complaints received. What are some of the incidences um, that we're talking about? Either some of the anecdotal incidents that you have in the report or some of the bigger statistical information? It's verbal harassment, shunning, 
don't get in my cab, don't come close to me. It's spitting. A lot of it involves spitting, um, pouring of liquids on people's heads, milk to show disdain, disgust. So, you know, just kind of real humiliating things that is for the most part, not gonna get people arrested because you're not gonna get arrested for that, but it's really, really hurt the community safety sort of feeling of people going out and doing just their normal living. Like, uh, maybe I won't go to the supermarket as much. Uh, I'm going to take the cab to and from my medical appointment. I'm not going to take the subway. Uh, should I just, you know, do I need to do this? And I'll keep my outside visits uh, to friends, families, doctors, as little as possible. So it's really hurt the community safety feeling. But then also people feel like, okay, well, you know, spitting, it's not good, you know, getting poured milk on the head, not good, but you know, it's not super serious, you know? But I, I really feel like those are warning signs along the way to what happened in Atlanta, which was for, for the Asian American community, no question that it was a hate crime. He was selecting Asian American women for a very specific sort of purpose. They were racialized and sort of sexualized in a very specific way. And those little incidents, in part lead, I think, to that kind of violence. And I think we need to put all of the things, those things together in the spectrum. Because when we let, let those little things happen, then we let the big things eventually happen. How, how has it been to see a, a focus from the media and from, um, and from others about this issue? For any group that's been in the margins, and that is not part of the mainstream and is not used to seeing the issues that they talk about with them, with their people in their own community. It's sort of surprising to see the conversations that you have in the margins in the mainstream. On the one hand, you're like, I'm so glad it's out there. We can discuss it. We can make things better. Let's all get together. Let's talk about it. Everyone can understand these things. But then in the back of your mind, you also think, wow, it took a long time to get here. And it's too bad that we can't have these conversations as part of our national conversation all the time about building a better society for everyone here. You know, so there is a there's there's a little bit of that. But of course, overall, it's good, better late than never and better that we develop these conversations. We move our laws forward. We move our society forward. Um, and, and at the same time, of course, Asian American community feels traumatized on, in some way, you know, by 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 the fear of going out and uh, the fear of being attacked. And, um, but I think nonetheless, it needs to be out there. We need to see it. I think these things have been happening probably in one way or another. Uh, and and, and th this is a strong wave right now. It is not, it's not always this bad, right? And, and for, for decades, it can be very quiet and it's fine, but it doesn't mean the problems don't exist and are sort of buried there beneath the soil. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about the report was, um, you know, we're seeing the surge with the pandemic, but it it really addresses some of the causes and contributing factors through history. Um, you talked about, um, you know, economic concerns with China. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the causes and contributing factors to anti-Asian hate and violence? Yeah, if we look at history, the treatment of Asians and the, and the nations they come from will often affect how that group is treated domestically. So there's always sort of geopolitical uh, framework that frames how Asians are received. So when the Chinese started coming to America in 1849, uh, to California in the gold rush, they served a, an important um, replacement labor because uh, civil war, 
then uh, you know, uh, ended the institution of slavery. America was building and needed a lot of like inexpensive labor and the Chinese laborers eventually came to fill that need. They made contributions beyond the railroad, like building much of the agricultural industry in China. But after their purpose was served, America decided it didn't really want them, that they couldn't become Americans, they wouldn't become Americans, and they legislated, they ran them out of towns, there was violence, killings, uh, you know, they didn't want them to be part of the West. And China as a country was weak, could not protect the interests of its citizens at that point, because they could not, the, the US would not allow Chinese to become citizens. And so the Chinese eventually had the Chinese Exclusion Act passed on them because the government back in China couldn't prevent that from happening. Then the Japanese laborers came. And at first they kind of came and they were okay, but then eventually they were not welcomed. But the Japanese government at that time was ascendant militarily and politically. So they got a little bit more breathing room for their people in America. So the international context is a little obscured today because we're talking about attacking Asian Americans. But to be very, not blunt, but to be very clear, it is this increasing tension between US and China. Uh, where we're seeing them as the enemy. We're told that they're the enemy. And it's a Sinophobia that is overlying this framework for anti-Asian sentiment and people that they see that they believe to be Chinese. That lady that was attacked yesterday, the video that's coming out, she's Filipino, right? You know, and so, people are not really differentiated. Like they see an Asian looking person, they feel as Asian uh, Chinese that is to blame somehow for COVID. And then they've, they're frustrated. Perhaps they have suffered the loss of someone they love or the loss of money. And they feel they want to take it out on somebody and they are presenting a target and it's happening. And we have to figure out how to stop that. So let's talk about some of the proposals that you have for ways that we um, can break the cycle of violence against Asian Americans. Can you briefly describe some of the seven initiatives um, that is proposed that are proposed at the end of the report? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, NYPD has been responsive. They created uh, within their existing hate crimes task force, the Asian Hate Crimes Task Force. Uh, the issue with that is that it's the Asian Hate Crimes Task Force is staffed with volunteers, and it's not funded. Uh, which means that the person in, in charge of it does not have any funding and the people are being borrowed from other roles or performing other full-time roles within the NYPD and they're serving essentially as translators. So they're really figureheading um, like a PR response and they're not really engaging in a, in a, in a very serious matter. Because you know what? It's like for government, it's like put your money where your mouth is. And we don't, we don't think that's a real response. You know, we need to have both the, the front facing, but then behind it, we need to see resources, i.e. money, time and effort and people being rewarded internally with the system to say, you did this case really well, you're gonna get promoted. Even these people are hardworking, they care about the community for sure, but they got a full-time job. They need to be, that they will be evaluated on. And this is just volunteering within their workplace. We don't, we don't think that's the right way to do it. Great, are there others that you'd like to highlight, particularly ways that, um, lawyers and bar associations can take action? So, you know, we think there should be more use of the hate crime statutes. Uh, we think that as it relates to Asian Americans, there's a hard, there's a difficulty in understanding among district attorneys about what it means to have hate crimes. You know, I think for African Americans, we have the prototype situation, like the, the noose, uh, the swastika. We understand if we see that, we know where it's going, we know where it came from. You know, for Asian Americans, and you see this in the Atlanta shooting, 
it, the, the issue kind of disappears. It, it's not really like, ooh, what, what's race? Well, Asian Americans are pretty much white, right? They don't really experience racism. What, what's that about? It's just crime. It's not a hate crime. And I think so. So that's where we as a bar association, Asian American bar, and the people who understand, I think, hate crimes, you know, really intimately can say, you know what, it's not, let's not, let's apply it where it applies, but let's not be so quick to write it off and to say, no, there's no hate crime here, you know, and, and, and so we are there, we are figuring out in the meanwhile, how to have prosecutors understand sort of Asian Americans, because at the same time, we're having it being talked in the media and this greater understanding of Asian Americans, we need to have that for DAs, because as you know, they have so much discretion in understanding. But if they don't have that history, if they don't have that approach, it's difficult for them to wrap their minds around race and Asian Americans. And what do you think about representation in, in all areas of government and public office. I know that there are a lot of uh, Asian leaders who are calling on Biden in an aggressive way to make some real appointments that actually matter. What what do you think the, the visibility and actual power in terms of representative government, um, how important is that to, to the problem? It, it's so critical. You know, in the last 10 years, Asian Americans you know, particularly like myself that grew up here, our parents came and their first, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and their first sort of uh, duty was to find a job and to support us. And then we grew up here. So we went to school here, we went to law school here, we, we came through the system. So then we can run for office. And there's a lot of lot more representation now than it was in, in previous years. And they're pressing Biden. Biden has spoken about this many times from the presidential podium, met with the Atlanta family and the Asian American community all necessary and so welcomed, right? And But it's just still just the beginning uh, because uh, we really need an engaged effort, you know, and, and, and Biden has done the right thing because Trump's China virus came from the podium, Biden needed to speak from the podium about how that was unacceptable for him and why. And so we really needed that. Um, but now we need a federal government that has people that understand the issues and that can take the enormous resources of the federal government and begin to make some good, you know, uh, and deal with these problems. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have is that, you know, uh, to recommend Kamala Harris be made part of, uh, be made head of the White House initiative on Asian Pacific Americans that can sort of begin to coordinate resources. And there are many good resources. They just need to be sort of directed as how do you serve this community? What do they need? What do you need to do different? And finally, is there one action step that you would ask listeners today who may be lawyers, most live in New York and New York City? Is there an action that you would have them take right now to help um, you know, curb the tide here? I think that um, we are in a great moment where uh, if we learn more about Asian Americans and their place integral place in American history, um, I think we would all be better off because like the larger scale of American history that everyone understands, I think the more we can move together as a country. So I would say Erica Lee's The Making of Asian America, it's a great book, you know, on Amazon. Just understand that story. And I think that if everyone just sort of learned one or two things more than they knew before, we could all move together and they could figure out later on where they could contribute and make things better for the Asian American community. And we'll be right there waiting. And we're so glad that everyone's listening. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking us to be here. Next up, I'm joined by Keegan Mays-Williams. 
Keegan is policy counsel at Every Town for Gun Safety. She is a member of the Legal Board of Directors, and she joins us today to talk about the connections between hate violence and easy access to guns and to offer some policy solutions. Keegan, how are you? I'm good, Eric. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's really good to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to be able to have this conversation with you today. Um, the topic is obviously very heavy, um, but it's a really, really important issue. And I'm really excited that we're able to talk about the intersections between gun violence, some of the racial hate violence that we've seen, and the LGBT community. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, your work as policy counsel at Every Town for Gun Safety. Oh, that that's great, Eric. Yes, I'm happy to. So, um, yes, as you said, I work at Every Town for Gun Safety, and my primary responsibilities um, concern assisting teams that I work with. I work in both the Northeast and the South, and I review bills that uh, concern when and how certain firearms are obtained and used by the public. And then I offer counsel as to whether a particular bill supports or opposes our organizational policy platform. Um, and I also often have the opportunity to draft gun violence prevention legislation for lawmakers um, who seek to protect their communities. Uh, I can give you a little bit of a little bit of background about every town with the caveat that I am here in my personal capacity and I'm not actually uh, representing every town, but a lot of the information that you will hear today are based on the research um, that every town has provided. Uh, so every town is an umbrella organization with nearly 6 million supporters. It is the largest gun violence prevention organization in, the, in America. Uh, we have two grassroots advocacy arms. Uh, we have Moms Demand Action, um, which is a volunteer network with more than 700 local groups and a chapter in every state. Um, 35 moms volunteers ran for election and won just last year. Um, and we also have Students Demand Action, which started in 2018. Um, and that is a national movement of high school and college student volunteers. We have nearly 400 active groups and active volunteers in every state. Um, together, moms and students have made 3.7 million calls and texts to voters during the election cycle in support of gun sense candidates. And students registered more than 100,000 people to vote. Um, and then we just have two other arms. We have Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which is a bipartisan group of more than a, th a thousand current informed mayors uh, who advocate for life-saving gun safety reforms and also our Everytown Survivor Network. Um, and that connects survivors of gun violence nationwide and offers trauma-informed programs and amplifies the voices of survivors who choose to become advocates. Um, and that's Everytown. You know, it just reminds me how um, how broad the support is for gun, um, gun reform, and it also shows how gun violence impacts every community. Um, though certainly, and one of the things that we're going to talk today about is that it doesn't impact every community in the same way or at the same level. And I wonder if we could start by talking with um, hate crimes and 
how the vast majority of hate crimes are directed against people of color, religious minorities, LGBTQ people. We just spoke with Chris Kwok about the surge in anti-Asian violence in New York City, and certainly with the shooting in Atlanta and the rise in violence against AAPI community members, um, we're seeing that that's fueled by guns as well. How does easy access to guns make these instances of hate violence more deadly and frequent? That's a really great question, Eric. Uh, and I also wanna acknowledge the rise in violence against the members of the AAPI community at large, particularly against AAPI women uh, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we know that the violence against women fueled by misogyny, racism, and fetishization has become more deadly by easy access to guns and has plagued the United States for a generation. Uh, if we consider that in an average year, over 10,300 hate crimes in the United States involve a firearm. Uh, so when you do that like mental calculation, that equates to more than 28 hate crimes where a gun is involved each day. Uh, and reports indicate that within the AAPI community and other vulnerable and marginalized community, hate crimes are woefully underreported and on the rise. Um, so that is certainly something that, that we need to talk about. Um, and then, you know, when we talk about easy access to guns, we're talking about the fact that within the United States, states that have weaker gun laws and higher rates of gun ownership also have higher rates of mass shootings. Um, easy access to guns means that you can live in a state where background checks are not required for all gun sales. You can legally go online and purchase a gun without a background check, without any questions asked at a gun show, from a neighbor, from a stranger, um, and it would be and it's perfectly legal. Um, Another, another uh, since we're talking specifically about hate violence, um, unfortunately, I, I, think, I think it might be helpful to give a little context in the way of, of uh, three, I hate to say the word, famous but well-known mass shootings that have um, had a genesis in hate. Uh, when we think of these mass shootings, we think of the 2015 shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, when a white supremacist opened fire in a church killing nine black worshipers. Uh, we understand now that the shooter told a friend about his violent plans and that he was known to abuse drugs. And he posted a document online indicating that he had plans to commit violence. We think about the 2016 shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, when a gunman shot and killed 49 people and injured 53, most of who identified as LGBTQ and Latinx. And we know that the shooter uh, was physically violent towards his ex-wife and a colleague indicated that the shooter had threatened to kill people. Uh, and finally, the 2018 shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when a gunman killed 11 worshipers and injured six people with an assault weapon and three handguns. Uh, he was a very active uh, member of a social media network for white nationalists and other extremists and reportedly entered the building yelling anti-Semitic hate speech. Um, so when we talk about easy access to guns and we talk about the fact that in some states, certain people can gain access 
legal access to a gun, um, despite their views, despite um, you know their feelings about other communities, particularly marginalized communities. Uh, what we have is a, a situation where a lot of people um, are can be hurt and killed. Um, and we also have to acknowledge that under federal law and under many states, you are not prohibited from possessing a gun if you're convicted of a hate crime uh, and you are still allowed to legally possess and purchase a gun. And so, so, so those are some of the reasons that um, hate crimes coupled with easy ass, uh, access are particularly deadly. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about mass shootings and hate crimes and the solutions that we might uh, seek to address some of these issues. And you've certainly brought up, you know, some of them just now. But you mentioned white supremacy and extremist ide ideology is definitely driving some of these mass shootings. The ones that you mentioned over the past few years. Um, certainly one that comes to mind was the shooting in El Paso, where the shooter was found to have a manifesto detailing the shooting uh, was in response to the invasion of Hispanics coming across the southern border. Mm -hmm. um, what's this correlation between white supremacy and gun violence? Another uh, fantastic question, and it, and it is actually a very nuanced uh, response. Um, we actually put out a report toward the end of last year, which really um, tied in the gun in the gun industry's um, kind of direct influence in fueling uh, propaganda and gun ownership and um, extremism and uh, the participation, which has really elevated and radicalized those um, people who are already a bit radicalized and while also advocating for more lax gun laws all over the country. Um, so this past summer, we saw armed protests. We saw a resurgent white supremacist movement, anti-government militias, organizing conspiracy theories brought into the mainstream. Um, purposeful sowing of distrust in political institutions. So all of these like very dangerous concepts plus, and, and what we see in common is that there's this gun rights fanaticism that is the common denominator uh, for all of these challenges. And, you know, every town has uh, in part developed to be the counterweight to the NRAs influence on the population. Um, and so every town has spent a lot of time uh, paying attention to the NRA um, and really exposing how they have helped radicalize the message for the far right and how they fan the flames of anger and fear um, and have also helped for advocating for lax guns that enable violent extremists to arm themselves. I'm wondering, because there's so much to say about the topic and how heavy it is, I'm wondering if in our policy solutions, we always focus on, you know, DC and how federally we, despite all of the support for sensible gun reform legislation, we can't seem to get anything done. Have you, do you have any stories about policy initiatives that have taken off at the state and local levels that really 
uh, you know, kind of are uplifting and show that we can have progress forward on some of these issues? Absolutely, absolutely. There are a lot of states doing the work um, where the federal government has yet to catch up. Um, so I mentioned uh, background checks earlier. 22 states in DC have enacted laws requiring a criminal background check for all handgun sales. And of those uh, 22 states, 17 in DC also cover long gun sales. So think your assault weapons, shotguns, rifles, which as we know can be equally deadly in any circumstance. So in those 17 states, there are background checks for all of those. And in of those 17 states, 11 of those states also require point of sale background checks. Another great thing that states have done are enact extreme risk laws. Uh, now extreme risk laws are laws that provide a process to temporarily remove guns from people who show warning signs that they pose a significant risk of violence to themselves or others. Um, and 19 states in DC so far have enacted these laws, many of which were enacted right after Parkland happened in 2018. Um, and so as we talked about the Charleston shooter and the Tree of Life shooter, um, there were signs that these, per these people could, could act violently. Uh, and so um, states who have enacted these policies um, and there is legislation also pending at the federal level um, have really acted to give their communities another opportunity to temporarily remove guns from a potentially really dangerous environment. But also, I'm wondering if you could talk about the violence, you know, mass shootings take a lot of airspace, hate violence we focused on, but gun violence in, in communities disproportionately affects people of color and other vulnerable minorities, LGBT people um, who live in, in big cities. Can you talk a little bit about the particular impact there? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, Eric, because too often um, daily gun violence is, is seen as an issue that has no solution and therefore um, does not get as much attention as it should, frankly. Uh, frankly. Um, considering cumulatively um, daily gun violence uh, impacts us all uh, in ways that mass shootings, which are terrifying, um, luckily don't happen as often. Some of the things, uh, some of the ways to kind of break down how gun violence impacts the United States are to break them down by intent. Um, so we know that 60% of the gun deaths in America are from firearm suicide. 36% uh, of the gun deaths are by homicide. 1% are police shootings with the caveat that police shootings are underreported and 1% are uh, unintentional deaths. So think of children uh, finding unsecured guns in their home and accidentally harming or killing themselves or their uh, family members. When we think about suicide, for example, um, you know, US gun suicide rate is 10 times that of other high income countries. 
uh, access to the guns triples the risk of death by suicide. And uh, white men represent 73% of the firearm suicide victims in America. Now, when we talk about homicide, uh, US gun homicide is 25 times that of other high income countries. Um, and again, access to guns doubles the risk of death by homicide. Also, firearms are the leading cause of death of American teens and children. Uh, more than 1,800 children and teens die by gun homicide every year. Um, and children under the age of 13, uh, their homicides most frequently occur in the home, and they're often connected to uh, domestic violence um, or other types of family violence. Uh, and unfortunately, Black children and teens are 14 times more likely than white children and teens of the same age to die by gun homicide. Um, and we just touched on domestic violence, which of course is um, really one of, or intermittent partner violence is, is one of the types of gun violence that is truly deadly in this country. Women in the United States are 21 times more likely to be killed with a gun than women in other high income countries. So the impact here is, I think, Eric, well, your ultimate question is, the impact is 58% of American adults or someone they care for has experienced gun violence in their lifetime. That's over half of our population. Well, but it's astounding. The reason it's so important to talk about, and I'm glad that we were able to have the time to do it, daily gun violence, is that we do hear so much about mass shooting, and mm -hmm. and um, but they're staggering numbers. They they absolutely are. And 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 one community that I failed to address uh, when in my last answer, but absolutely needs to be a part of the conversation, is that you know, gun violence against the transgender community um, continues to rise. Uh, there are, were a number of deadly shootings last summer. Um, and, you know, as we spoke about at the top, many of these killings are hate motivated. Um, and actually every town has um, been keeping track of all of the trans women that are killed each year. Um, and what we've noticed is that there is uh, a particularly large number of black trans women that, that tend to be killed. Um, and we also understand that those uh, numbers um, along with hate crime reports may be underreported. But what we do understand is that guns are the most frequently used weapon in the murder of trans people. Um, and of the 80 homicides of trans or gender non-conforming people in America between 2017 and 2019, three-fourths of those victims were killed with a gun. Um, and that 79% of known trans homicide victims were Black, despite Black people just making up 16% of the trans population. Um, and what we also understand, unfortunately, is that these deaths are concentrated in southern states. Thank you for bringing up the impact on particularly trans women of color and um, that gun violence is an LGBT issue. I'm wondering if in closing you had some 
some thoughts for people about what they can do um, to help support the efforts of every town, or if they're disheartened by whether it's the racially motivated hate violence that we've seen in New York City, or whether it's just gun violence more broadly or the mass shootings, what, are, what would you encourage them to do right now today uh, to, to make sure that we're taking steps forward? Uh, first, contact your legislator, and this could be on the local level, the state level, um, and, and contact your federal Congress people and demand that they either support or introduce and pass gun violence prevention legislation. Uh, every town does a wonderful job and has a really robust research department and they're constantly putting out reports. So if for some reason you're just unaware of what policies exist in your state, please go to everytownresearch.org you can just type in your state and you will get a sense of the policies that affect your states and how much further we need to go. Number two, if your legislator not only fails to vote for common sense gun le violence legislation, um, but also introduces bills that further compromise the safety of your state and community, make sure that the next time you have an opportunity to vote, that you're supporting a candidate that will prioritize gun safety uh, policies. And number three, join your local chapter of Moms Demand Action or Students Demand Action. We're in all 50 states and we're looking for as much uh, advocacy and support as you're willing to share with us. Keegan, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this issue. Um, I, I've really, it's opened my eyes to uh, the way that you remembered and the statistics um, are just uh, I'm overwhelmed, um, and I'm I'm definitely inspired to get to get involved, and I hope people listening are too. Right. Eric, thank you so very much for having me and asking me such important questions today. Listening, this and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes. Please give us five stars, leave a review. It's how people find out about our podcast. We will, of course, be back with Art Leonard for the LGBT Law Notes episode of the podcast, but I did want to give a special plug for an upcoming podcast that we'll be doing with the director of the LGBT HIV project at the ACLU, James Essex, who's also on our board of directors. We're going to be doing a sort of June 2020 through June 2021 SCOTUS discussion, starting with the Bostock ruling, and then working our way through the cases that are are advancing it and moving towards the anticipated ruling in Fulton v. Philly and what that might mean going forward. So you're not going to want to miss that. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon.